Well, this morning we look at a startling passage. By the end of our time together, there'll be two people dead because they didn't give what they said they would to the church. Now, originally this was going to be my text for the weekend that I was preaching on Faith Promise. I decided it might not have been a very good one. (laughs) So I changed passages. The application of this text is not you better give your faith promise on the way out the door, otherwise God's going to strike you dead. That is not the proper application of this, uh, of this text. We pick up in Acts, though. We've been away from it for a while. And this morning we look at Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32, going through 511. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But, there's a shift here, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yeah, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. The grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of our God, it is true and living and active, and it will abide forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As we look at this jarring text, we pray that you would clothe us and anoint us with the Holy Spirit that you might give us understanding. Lord, use a, a weak and sinful and imperfect and flawed pastor uh, to, to clearly portray your word and your Savior. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Surprisingly, there was not a children's bulletin for this text. (laughs) Right? We use a program that you dial in the text you're preaching on, and and it gives you a children's bulletin with a picture of what happens. And I was really sad when I went to find the one for this text that there wasn't one of a dead Ananias and a dead Sapphira. You know, attacks from um, attacks are easier 
to deal with when they're from the outside instead of when they're from the inside. Isn't that true? Right? It's much easier to withstand attacks from the outside than it is from the inside. Have you ever seen a seawall? For years and years, perhaps decades, the, the waves pounded and pounded on the outside. And nothing happened. And, and then there was just a small little crack. And slowly it began pulling out a grain of sand here, a grain of sand there. And the next thing you know, the whole thing crumbles because it's been eroded from behind, from the inside. It's much easier to withstand attacks from the outside than it is from the inside. Or, or take the damage from water during a storm. Uh, we had a, um, a roof put on our house right before we moved in. So I know that it's a little over seven years old. Eight years? How long have I been here? Seven years. Right? It's seven years. Now, it has withstood thousands, millions. I don't know how many gallons of water have poured on this roof. And it's been fine until a limb struck our roof. Not a big one, but it, it, it put a two-inch hole right in our kitchen without us knowing it during one of those dry seasons. And then the next time it rained, which was over Thanksgiving when we were out of town, we came home and there was water damage everywhere in our kitchen. That which had been outside was now inside. It had gotten in and, and it's much easier to deal with the threat on the outside than it is on the inside. If you remember where we are when we last looked at Acts, Peter and John had been arrested for preaching the gospel, told never to do it again, and then released because of the crowds. They, the Jewish leadership were afraid. Well... Satan had attacked the church from the outside using the unbelieving Jewish leadership, but his attack was unsuccessful. And so now we see that he's going to change gears. He's going to change tactics, and he's going to seek to attack from within the church through Ananias and Sapphira. And my friends, we constantly have to be on guard against Satan's continued attempts to destroy the church from within. And so we pick up with verse 32a, and we read this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul. Now the full number here, we're told previously in chapter 4, that this number was about 5,000 men. It's, they just are counting men now. And, and so if you add in women and children, how many is that? 10, 15,000? We think by the time we get to Acts chapter 8, there are probably about 20,000 believers in Jerusalem. This is only a few months after Pentecost. I mean, the church is exploding. And any time you get that many people who have just become believers all together, it is amazing that they would all be of one heart and one soul. It's almost like it's a miracle. right? Because for every one person, you have one sinner, both back then and, and now. But there are, few, fewer things, there are few things that Satan hates more than a church that is unified. There are a few things that Satan hates more than a church that is unified. Think about it. When we as a church are together in purpose and mind, seeking the glory of the Lord to know Christ and to make Him known, to equip you, to equip others, when we're together on that, we can accomplish much as a church. But, but when we are divided, so much energy is spent dealing with what's on the inside that there's less energy to deal with on the outside. It's kind of like the... the um, National debt. This is not a political statement uh, because we've increased the national debt under Republican and Democratic uh, uh, presidents. But you know, the more debt you have, the more you have to spend your energy on servicing that debt, just pay, paying just for the interest. And that's kind of how it works. When Satan attacks on the inside, you've got to deal with that issue before you can 
deal with the principle, deal with the principal issue at hand, which is seeking to advance the kingdom. And so Satan is going to attack from within on this passage. Now the unity that they had for each other was clearly evidenced by something that everybody could see, and that was their financial sacrificing one for another. You look at anybody's bank records, and it's going to tell you what he or she values and loves. That's why I'll never look at mine. Um, now, we, we see how this played out in their myths. In verses 34 and 35, there was not a needy person among them. Why? Why? I mean, that's a lot of people. And people would have been losing jobs because of their new profession in Christ. They would have been losing connections to families. There were people who were needy within them. They weren't needy because they weren't working and could. And they just weren't looking for a job. It's because they legitimately could not work because they were kept from it. Or because of physical issues, family issues, the like. But there was not a, a poor person among them. Why? For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to as any had needs. Now this isn't socialism. This isn't communism. Both of those things mandate the giving away of stuff. That this is a free market economy energized not by selfish gain, but by the Holy Spirit leading His people to look out for the interest, not only of themselves, but to the interest of others. Indeed, people were so generous amongst the brothers and sisters in Christ, there was not anyone who went without. And this took sacrifice. Those who had possessions sold them and gave them to the church. Now, Luke's going to give us an example of one such person sacrificing for the good of his brothers and sisters in Christ as he introduces us to a name that we're going to spend a lot of time on in the coming months, and that's the name of Barnabas. Barnabas. Now, his name means son of encouragement. He's the kind of guy that you would want to be your friend. In fact, we're told over in Acts 11.24 that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now, I will say as an aside, there is a phrase that is very common and I think unique to Bruton, Alabama. And that's the phrase, he's a good man. I, I'm from the outside. And when I moved here, I'd never heard this phrase used like this. We're, we'd be talking about someone and say, oh man, he's a good man. And, you know, being an uptight preacher of sorts, I was thinking, there's no one good. You can't say that. And then I came across Acts 11, verse 24. He was a good man. It's not talking about his righteousness in terms of earning his salvation. He was a man whose forensic righteousness, that is his saving righteousness from Christ, it showed forth in his ethical righteousness and the way he lived day, to day in and day out. Wouldn't it be great if your friends put on your tombstone, he was a good man or she was a good woman. It's a pretty good testimony, right? Well, he sacrificed financially to help provide for those in need around him. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. There's a lot of application about using our finances for the good of others. But we have read that part to get ready for the next part. Verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5. And this really is one of the most surprising and most jarring accounts in all of Scripture. By the end of the account, of the account two people are dead and buried. And on the surface, it might seem kind of harsh and hard to apply to our situation. It's not saying that if you don't pay your tithes today, then God's going to strike you down. That's, that's not what's going on here. 
So first we're going to unpack the narrative of what happens, and then we're going to talk about what it means. Well, there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who were part of the church there in Jerusalem. We don't really know anything else about them. We don't even know if they were truly saved or not. That's a, a tough nugget to, to chew on in this text. Were Ananias and Sapphira saved or not? It's not like Christians can't do stupid things. I've done many of them. We don't know a whole lot about them. But they sold a piece of land that they had. And one day, Ananias shows up and gives a bag full of coins, a bag full of money to the apostles. Just like Barnabas has done. And, he, and if you were sitting in the pews, we don't know if this was a church service or what was going on. Or this was at the worldwide church headquarters. I don't, I don't, we don't know where they are. But they were doing it just like Barnabas, the example we just read, to give to the needs, to give to the church, to spend on the needs who needed help. But there was something very wrong, very different about this situation as we contrast it with that of the good example of the good man, Barnabas. Look at verses 1 and 2. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, there's nothing wrong with giving a portion of what you sell to the church. They were under no obligation. They weren't under contract. In fact, Peter's going to say in verse 4, when it was unsold, wasn't it at your disposal? And even when you sold it, it was, it was your money to do with you what you wanted to. The problem is that Ananias and Sapphira were acting as if this was everything. It's like if um, you own some really well-known property in town. We'll say, what's a really well-known property? We'll say the high school. You own the high school, and it's being sold, and, it's, and you're selling it. And there's a big sign out there that says $5 million. And, uh, and everybody knows that it's $5 million, and you go and sell it, and you bring $4 million to the table and say, this is everything I got. There's a little bit of a problem there, right? This wasn't an oversight or mistake. The Greek word translated kept back in verse 2 is a very telling one. It means to embezzle. It means to withhold secretly. Do you remember the story of Achan? This is testing your Old Testament knowledge. Back in Joshua chapter 7, we, we find that he stole some of the things that he was meant to destroy when the Israelites invaded and destroyed Jericho. They weren't allowed to keep anything. But do you know what he did? He kept back. Part of that that he was supposed to destroy. Use the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And do you know what happened? He lied about it. He was discovered, and then God ordered him executed. That's the background for what's happening here. So Ananias comes before Peter and tells him, Hey, here's all the money I got from selling that property that I was telling you about to help poor folks. But Peter wasn't having it. See, he knew by the anointing, the filling of the Spirit that Ananias was lying and had stolen the money. In fact, he says that he's been filled by Satan and not the Holy Spirit, and he's lied to God the Holy Spirit. Not a good place to be. In fact, this text is a great proof text for the divinity of the Holy Spirit. If you notice in here, first it says you lied to the Holy Spirit, and then it says you lied to God. God the Holy Spirit. And then the jarring, surprising thing happens. Verses 5 through 6, we read, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young ones rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Did you, did you see what just happened? 
Ananias died on the spot. He hears Peter's words. He's not given a chance to repent. He's not given a chance to respond. He dies, sits the floor, and then is buried immediately. Here is the immediate judgment of God upon Ananias, who had lied to the Holy Spirit and sought to deceive the church. And the text says everybody was really afraid. <laughs> there was great fear. I imagine, I imagine we'd be a little afraid too. Can't you imagine the silence as they left that prayer meeting? Well, apparently they didn't notify or succeed in notifying his wife, Sapphira. We don't have all the details here. For three hours later, Sapphira shows up wherever Peter and the apostles are, and she doesn't know what's happened. And then Peter questions her, and there's a bit of, a, of mercy here, isn't there? There's a chance for her to come clean. He gives her a chance to indict herself or to come clean. And what happens? Verse 8, And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Perhaps he's even pointing at the bag of coins. And she said, Yes, for so much. Well, she stands firm in her disobedience and her division-causing actions. And after hearing some explanatory words from Peter about what she and her husband have done, she falls down dead and is buried by the same people who had buried her husband. It's a pretty jarring story, isn't it? I mean, if we really put ourselves in that situation, um, that man, I can't imagine being there for this. What in the world's going on? You know, the, the liberal commentators go out of their way to say that they had some sort of heart attack because they were shocked and found out. Or, I mean, it's, they really, but it's real clear from the text what's happened. This is the direct and immediate judgment of God upon them for their sin. And it's not just jarring to us, it was jarring to them. We read two times in this text they had great fear, or as the Greek says, mega fear. Mega fear is about right. What was their sin? As we try to parse this out, to look at the principles, what, what can we learn? What, were, what was their sin? It's, you know, sin is one of those things that's like a, a big bundle. We've been blessed with a cat. I used to hate cats. Now I love my cat. I'll put it that way. And, uh, and so we have a, a lint roller. Uh, I didn't really have a lint roller or ever use one until we had a cat. But, you know, when you start using a lint roller, it, just, it doesn't just get the, the cat hair. It gets everything else off of you. You look down, it's just all this sticky mess of all the stuff you didn't even know was on you. That's kind of how sin works. It's not just the one thing. Sin is just a wrapped up big bundle of, of untangleable mess. And any time we sin, we never just sin one time, one thing. Because every time we sin, we're going to break the 10th commandment, which is we shall not covet, because we're coveting. We want something that God says we shouldn't have. And we're also always going to break the first commandment, which is to have no other gods besides God. And we're putting other things before Him. So usually when we sin, we sin all sorts of ways. So we could spend a lot of time pulling things out. But I want to focus on two things here that are especially shocking, but also especially convicting, because I see them in my life, and I would imagine you see them in yours. The first, the first, is hypocrisy, right? That's the main thing, I think, going on here, just the rank hypocrisy. They were acting as if they were obeying God and doing one thing when they were doing something else. They were pretending to be holy and sacrificing for the good of their brothers and sisters in need, but in reality, their actions were only self-serving. And here's the thing, by this, they thought that they could get away with it. 
This is what it means when Peter says, you agreed together to test the Holy Spirit. They thought that the Holy Spirit wouldn't know what's going on and they could get away with it. Hypocrisy is one of those things we have to be careful how we talk about. Right? For what, on the one hand, the church is full of hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. Right? What is hypocrisy is when we say one thing and do another, and this is what we do every time we sin. Praise God that there's salvation for hypocrites like me and you. On the other hand, the, the text, especially here, there's a, a sense of high-handed hypocrisy or rank hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is one of the most damaging things to the health of the church within and the vitality of the witness of the church beyond the walls. If the people of a certain church are known as being hypocritical in public, then it will damage the witness of church and it harms the reputation of Christ. How we act as believers in Christ affects our relationships within the church and our witness for Christ outside the church. I like what John Stott, a great preacher, said about hypocrisy. He says, God hates hypocrisy but loves reality. God hates hypocrisy but loves reality. Think about the damage that the high-handed hypocrisy like that of Ananias and Sapphira could have had on that early, young congregation. Unrepentant sin within the body of Christ always harms the body. And this is one of the primary ways in which Satan attacks from within. I have some foot problems, and so that's why if you ever see me during the week, I'm, I'm always wearing a plaid shirt, because apparently my shirts only come in plaid, and, uh, and, and khakis of one color or another, as long as it's brown, and then tennis shoes. I wear tennis shoes to work. It, it's not a, exactly a good look, but I wear tennis shoes because I have foot problems, and so I had to buy some new tennis shoes, the same ones I had last time, and they hurt my feet. And it took about a week to get them broken in. And my big toe just kept hurting. Now, now here's the thing. The big toe is, as far as surface area, square footage of your body, it's a small part of your body. But you know, when your big toe is hurting, it'll ruin your day. It'll just straight up ruin your day. Now, that's how it is with unrepentant sin in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 compares us to the ears and eyes and feet and noses of the body of Christ. And when any one part of the body is diseased, it affects the whole. You know, as we think about this text within the context of Satan attacking the church from within, we see that Satan gets a toehold, pun intended, a toehold through Ananias and Sapphira. Within each and every, listen to this. Listen to this. Within each and every one of us lies the constant fight between, between the flesh and the Holy Spirit. And how we do in that battle daily will affect us not just individually, but as a congregation, in your family, and in the community. How does Satan attack from the church within? Usually through us. That's how he did it through Ananias and Sapphira. We might compare this fight with chickenpox. My kids don't know what chickenpox is. I imagine your grandchildren don't either because they have vaccines for it now. I think I had chickenpox as a kid. I imagine many of you did too. And you know, chickenpox is it's a hard thing to deal with and um, it's very unpleasant. But then it, it, it goes away and it dies away and it's never to be dealt with again. 
except decades later, it can reactivate as something even worse, the shingles. I've known people with shingles on their eyelids. That's just terrible. That's kind of how sin works too, isn't it? The thing that we thought we put to death last week, last month, last year, can suddenly become an active struggle again. And before we know it, we've said things, we've done things, we've thought things that we thought we had put away. Within every one of us is this fight between the flesh and the spirit. And how we act and how we do in that battle every day affects not just us, but also with each other. You think about the progression of events that got Ananias and Sapphira to the point where they were willing to lie to the Holy Spirit and lie to the whole church and lie to the apostles, the ones they had seen do all these, these amazing supernatural works, stand before the authorities, be threatened with death, and think they could get away with it. My friends, that didn't happen overnight. Instead, it was, it was like that lint roller. Every time they ran over it, they collected more sin. Another thing that's going on here, and probably helped fuel the hypocrisy, is that they seem to love recognition more than God. Y'all, we love recognition, don't we? Our hearts long for it. I'm a preacher. I stand in front of people for a living, and I long for recognition. And I repent of that daily. Do you do do the same thing? I imagine you do. In different contexts and different kind of situations. Well, here we see what happens when a longing for recognition is greater than a love for God. None of us start out that way. I love one commentator says, The desire for human praise is more important to them than being faithful to God. They wanted recognition for giving more than they actually wanted to help. They wanted to be on the gold donation level, right? And only given to the tin donation level. It's like you get those sheets. I get one from my fraternity every year saying, all these people you know gave $50,000, you know, and these are the people who gave 10. And then at the very bottom, it's like, these people gave five. You know, why even put the name down there? Do you know why they put $5 down there? It's for shame. That's exactly what that is. You're not even as good as these $5 people. They're not getting a dime out of me. They wanted people to think that they were as godly and as filled with the Spirit as Barnabas, who had given out of sincerity rather than hypocrisy. They wanted to be seen as doing good, not so much doing good. But here's the thing. If if we're honest... Even when we are seeking to do good things for people, there's still part of us that wants that recognition, isn't there? Even when we are honestly and genuinely motivated, at least in part, to help someone. And then when they don't say thank you, we get upset. Why is that? That's not because we were trying to help them. that's That's the recognition side. Or we casually mention, I know you've never done this. We casually mentioned in conversation what we did for someone. Or we don't get the recognition we think we deserve, and it upsets us. Y'all, that, that's Satan tacking from within. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. And then God kills them. Does that seem harsh to you? 
I mean, at the very least, our, from our modern ears, we think, what in the world are you doing, Lord? But let's make the problem worse before we make it better. Because this situation is not isolated. If we think canonically, if we think in the whole Bible, this happens elsewhere too. In, Le- excuse me, in Leviticus chapter 10, uh, two men named Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, they are killed as fire comes out from the tent of meeting and consumes them because they worship the Lord improperly. There's more to that story, Leviticus 10. But bam, they're dead. Two of the sons of the first chief priest. And then he tells Moses to tell Aaron, don't even mourn for him. Go bury him right now. It's kind of similar to what happens here. Or in 2 Samuel 6-7, we see that God killed a man named Uzzah for reaching out and steadying the Ark of the Covenant because it was about to fall. That seems like a good thing to do, right? But you weren't supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And it wouldn't have been a problem if they were transporting it the way they were supposed to with poles instead of on a cart. He reached out, kept it from falling, and God killed him on the spot. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. People were dying because they were taking the Lord's Supper improperly. So let's make this problem worse before we make it better. What's going on here? Why do we not like this, this story? Why, why is there tension in our hearts? I think there are two main reasons, and I could be wrong, but I think first is we don't particularly like the justice and judgment of God, if we're honest. We don't like the idea... We like justice when it's on our side. But we don't like the idea of God Himself being the definition of justice and judgment and not needing our input or our approval for what He does. God is the one who kills Ananias and Sapphira. My friends, I think this is because we don't see sin from God's side. Romans 6.23 says the wages of all sin is death, right? Not just this one, but all of them. This isn't talking about physical death. This is talking about eternal, conscious, and everlasting death in hell, which is where your preacher deserves to go, apart from the blood of Christ. When we balk at God's treatment of their sin here, it is most likely because we have lost sight of the gravity of our own sin. God's mercy and grace... It is only because God's mercy and grace that He hadn't struck every one of us down already. But another reason I think that this text can smack us so hard is that even if we agree with God's judgment and justice, as if He needs our agreement, we don't like the idea of it breaking into this world. You know, that judgment is something that comes later. That, that's, that's, that's not now. That's after death. But there are times when that judgment, it breaks into the presence. Present. Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed. I think we don't like it when God's justice and judgment comes into this world in ways that we don't like. Because... I think we prefer the illusion that on a day-to-day basis we have only ourselves to answer to. We like that idea. And when it comes crashing into the present, even as we pray, your kingdom come on, on earth as is, is in heaven, do, do we, should we really pray that as long as, I mean, we should pray that, but it's not, there's not an asterisk there in the way we want. It's the way that God wants. But, but all this comes down to the fact that we deserve this and worse. 
When we read a text of Scripture, we're not meant to identify with the heroes. How does a text like this apply to us? How, how do we wrap up such a text? This is one of those texts they, they assign you in seminary, the hard texts, to see if you can sink or swim. Right? The account is supposed to be jarring to us. It's supposed to be jarring. And it was certainly uncomfortable for all those back in Peter's day. But do you know what should be more jarring to us? Is it the same God who decreed their deaths is the same one who took on flesh and died in our place? We deserve this and worse. We've shaded the truth. We've lied. We've tested the Spirit. We've done abominable things. But instead, Christ paid for all the times that we have shaded the truth, longed for recognition, and thought that we could get away with it. And instead of holding us guilty the last day, the Father has declared His perfect Son guilty so that we might have forgiveness and eternal life. This is what we deserve and more, but praise be to God that He has made His Son who knew no sin to be sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart, for today is a day of salvation. Lord, have mercy on us. Let's pray. Father, a jarring text from Your Word, and we know it is true because it is in Your Word. Help us then, Lord, as even as we repent of our hypocrisy, even as we repent of our longing for recognition, Lord, we pray that the only honor we would be concerned about would be the honor of our living God, that we would seek to glorify You in all that we do. We thank You that Christ has taken upon the cross the just penalty for our sin. It is in His name and His blood and His righteousness that we plead it. Amen.